Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This Day in Crime is released every day, Monday through Saturday. For ad-free listening and exclusive bonus content, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus at tenderfootplus.com or on Apple Podcasts. Let's start the show. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Todd McComas, and it's Saturday. Listen, I don't want to say that I'm out of shape right now, but last night I pulled a muscle in the middle of my back during a sneeze. Getting old is tragic, man, which is kind of fitting because our Saturday episodes are all about aging tragedy. So let's join Jessica Knoll as she walks us through a story of a young starlet's Hollywood dreams that were brutally ripped away in an infamous murder that's trail of cryptic clues and alluring suspects still haunts us over 75 years later. Back in crime, in the year 1947, around 11 a.m. on an unusually brisk January morning, a mother is walking her young child in a stroller along Norton Avenue in a Los Angeles neighborhood. As they mosey down the sidewalk, they happen upon what they believe is a mannequin But despite her porcelain-like complexion, this is no doll. It's a nude, butchered body of a starlet, posed just off the sidewalk near a vacant lot along what's known as Lover's Lane. It's a 22-year-old woman named Elizabeth, a woman who had big dreams for the big screen. In fact, she writes to her mom that she's going to be a star, but somewhere along the way, her violet eyes meet with her true Hollywood destiny. Anne Toth, a budding actress and one of Elizabeth's former Hollywood bungalow roommates, says they met in the summer of 1946. To her, she's Betty. Betty was a nice girl. It was just a coincidence she met up with some lousy man who got nasty. The girl wanted to live a clean life, but there are a lot of men who happen to be bums at heart. She's known to family and friends as Betty or Beth, but she's been known by the world for the past 77 years as another moniker. And the raven-haired beauty would finally achieve fame, but not in the way she ever wrote home about nor dreamed of. Her name would never be illuminated on a movie theater marquee in big, bold black letters. Instead, her nickname lands on the front page in bold print in newspapers for months following that grisly discovery on January 15, 1947, as the investigation into her murder persists. This is the story of Elizabeth Short, also known as the Black Dahlia. Phoebe Short calls her little girl Betty. 
She describes her as quiet, soft-spoken, and unassuming. Betty, whose birth name is Elizabeth, is born on July 29, 1924. Six years later, her father Cleo Short vanishes from a Charlestown parking lot. He's presumed dead, leaving Phoebe to raise their five daughters alone in New Medford, Massachusetts, a suburb of Boston. From the age of 10, Elizabeth suffers from severe asthma and a serious lung condition. Ultimately, she undergoes surgery for empyema. Because of her breathing condition, she spends her winters working as a waitress in the warmer climate of Florida and travels back to Boston for the summers. By her sophomore year, she drops out of high school. In 1943, she's 18 years old and working at Camp Cook, an army training base in Santa Barbara, California. Elizabeth keeps her mom up to date with what's going on in her life out west, making sure to write her each week with a letter detailing all her best news and her latest adventures. The last letter Phoebe receives from her Betty in 1946, she says she's working at a San Diego hospital. But she has a big dream that she shares with her mom in that letter as well. She's going to head to Hollywood and take over the big screen, just like Deanna Durbin, a beautiful actress who classmates often likened Elizabeth to as a teenager. Her mom says Betty is breathtaking. She's popular and always dresses exceptionally well. And now her beautiful daughter says she's going to be a movie star. In fact, Elizabeth boasts to her mom in letters that she's been breaking her way into showbiz, working as an extra and already landing some minor roles. Hollywood, 1947. The lights, the glam, the fame. But before a Hollywood walk of fame was established on Hollywood Boulevard and beyond the flashbulbs of cameras shooting the glitzy dresses walking along the red carpets, there's an underbelly, a struggle to make ends meet and to survive. One of Elizabeth's former roommates says, quote, Betty loved to prowl Hollywood Boulevard. She goes on to detail the grit, the truth, and the hunger to make it here. There are so many like me in Hollywood. They want to get into pictures, and they want to be a part of what they think is Hollywood glamour. You have to get a job to live. You can't earn very much money. I earned $22 a week, paid twice a month in one job. I've been hungry many times. After a while, you do what the other girls do. Pick somebody up who will buy you a dinner. A girl can have 10 pickups walking two blocks on Hollywood Boulevard. Elizabeth had her share of struggles, but one look at her and you would never know what lies beyond the surface of the perfectly polished social damsel. She's known as a Black Dahlia because of her love of sheer black dresses and the flower-like way she fixes her jet black trussels. But just past her star quality and her beauty, she's a nervous woman. She's fidgety and feverishly bites her nails down to the quick. She struggles to have enough money for rent and hops from home to home between Hollywood, Los Angeles, Santa Barbara, and San Diego. In fact, at one point, she locates her long-lost father, who's not dead, but living in California. She moves in with him briefly. He later tells police he hasn't heard from his estranged daughter in three years. He says he gave her $200 to come and stay with him. But according to him, 
Elizabeth spent all her time, quote, running around when she was supposed to be keeping house for me. I made her leave. I didn't want anything to do with her or any of the rest of the family then. I was through. By December 1946, she moves in with a mother and daughter in San Diego and eventually meets a man named Red. Hey, true crime listeners. I know at least some of us wish we could become a detective and find the clues to the case. But what if you could in a mobile game that you can take with you anywhere? Well, now you can with June's Journey. Each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. June's sister has been murdered. Uncover the mystery and find out about their scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story that takes you back to the glamour of the 1920s and features a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. Sometimes I'll catch myself stuck in a hotel lobby and decide to dive into finding all of the hidden clues in June's journey, going from one scene to the next. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Nancy's love story could have been ripped right out of the pages of one of her own novels. She was a romance mystery writer who happens to be married to a chef. But this story didn't end with a happily ever after. When I stepped into the kitchen, I could see that Chef Brophy was on the ground and I heard somebody say, call 911. As writers, we'd written our share of murder mysteries. So when suspicion turned to Dan's wife, Nancy, we weren't that surprised. The first person they look at would be the spouse. We understand that's usually the way they do it. But we began to wonder, had Nancy gotten so wrapped up in her own novels... There are murders in all of the books. ...that she was playing them out in real life? Follow Happily Never After, Dan and Nancy, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Happily Never After, Dan and Nancy, early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. On December 8th, 1946, Elizabeth meets Dorothy French at an all-night theater in San Diego where Dorothy's working as an usher. They hit it off, and the down-on-her-luck Elizabeth moves in with Dorothy and her mother, Elvira French, in Pacific Beach. Elvira says Elizabeth's depressed and moody because she can't find work and that she's secretive about her past. 
A week later, on December 16th, Elizabeth meets a man named Red. They're smitten with each other and go out often until he leaves for L.A. just before Christmas. But it isn't the last time the two were spotted together, and Elizabeth makes plans to leave San Diego and go back to L.A. herself. And after the new year, Elizabeth leaves the French's home with Red on January 8, 1947. The following day, Red drops her off at the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles. She's wearing a black suit, white fluffy blouse, black suede high-heeled shoes, nylon stockings, white gloves, and a full-length beige coat. She's carrying a black handbag. Inside is a black address book. On January 10th, bartender Buddy Lagore says he sees Elizabeth in his cocktail lounge on Hollywood Boulevard. She's a regular, but tonight she's noticeably not quite herself. She's with two male brunettes who Buddy describes as menacing. And while typically she's dressed to the nines with every hair in place, tonight she's disheveled and quote, frantic-eyed. Buddy says, she looked as if she had slept in her clothes for days. The black sheer dress was stained and crumpled. She always wore the best nylons, but this time she had no stockings on. Her hair was straggly. Lipstick had been smeared on at a hit or miss angle. The powder on her face was caked. And another thing I noticed, she was cowed. Instead of being gay and excited the way I'd always seen her before. Also, she was friendly and nice to me instead of acting like a grand lady and bossy. On January 14th at around 10 a.m., grocery store clerk Jack Fleming says Elizabeth is inside the Los Angeles store's telephone booth for 20 minutes. Wearing a gray pinstripe suit with a short jacket, she makes several calls while a redheaded man stands close by. By that evening, she's back in San Diego. Witnesses spot Elizabeth and Red together at a drive-in cafe on Pacific Highway, Balboa Street, at 5 p.m. They're laughing and talking and drinking a glass of beer together. Elizabeth is a regular at this cafe and known to waitress Jadelle Gray as Beth. She says Beth usually stopped in for a coffee when she lived nearby, but this visit to the cafe is different. The man she's with appears to be vain about his looks, constantly checking his neatly combed red hair in the reflection of a metal cigarette vending machine. Red later claims that when he dropped her off at the Biltmore Hotel on January 9th, he never laid eyes on her again. However, if they were in fact together that night in San Diego, five days after the hotel drop-off in Los Angeles, Red is the last person to have seen Elizabeth alive because by the next morning, she's found dead along Lover's Lane. On the morning of January 15, 1947, Elizabeth Short is found nude in a vacant lot posed just off the sidewalk in an LA neighborhood. Her body is cleanly cut in half at her waist. One of her breasts is missing and she has cuts and abrasions on her face and head. But there's no blood at the scene nor on her. However, her body is smeared with lipstick. The coroner makes a determination that she died 10 hours earlier due to hemorrhage and shock following severe blows to her head 
by a blunt instrument. There are marks left on her legs, wrist, neck, and right thigh, indicating she had been tied up and tortured prior to her death. And investigators believe she was killed elsewhere and then dumped here. The FBI identifies her by her fingerprints as 22-year-old Elizabeth Short, and the Los Angeles police offer a $10,000 reward for information. On Tuesday, January 21st, 1947, Los Angeles Police Chief C.B. Horrell issues a police bulletin for information leading to the capture of her assailant. At the top, in large, bold black letters in all caps, WANTED INFORMATION ON ELIZABETH SHORT. The bulletin requests information regarding her whereabouts between January 9th and January 15th. Just below the bold letters is a black and white photo of Elizabeth smiling, her lips painted with a deep crimson lipstick. She's wearing a light-colored collar shirt and her hair is meticulously curled and just touching her shoulders. Below her photo is her description. Female, American, 22 years, five foot six inches, 118 pounds, black hair, green eyes, very attractive, bad lower teeth, fingernails chewed to the quick. And quote, this subject found brutally murdered, body severed and mutilated January 15, 1947 at 39th and Norton. With that, an all-out manhunt for the killer begins. And that means looking for one of the last people to see her alive, the man known as Red. For his whereabouts, the chief issues the following police bulletin detailing the man police are now referring to as a suspect and quote, wanted for the investigation in mutilation murder of Elizabeth Short. Suspect is described as a white male American, approximately 25 years, six feet, 175 pounds, red hair, blue eyes, and light complexioned. He is known as Red or Bob. If car is located, hold for fingerprints and all occupants. Notify at Homicide Division, Los Angeles Police Department. Car is described as being possibly a 1940 Studebaker coupe cream or light tan in color, bearing California license number. The mystery man dubbed Red is 25-year-old Robert Red Manley. The freckled-faced man who has neatly groomed red hair has been seeing Elizabeth for a month, but he's married and his wife gave birth to their son four months ago. He chalks up his fooling around as, quote, due to a sort of adjustment period my wife and I went through after the baby was born. Red is a pipe salesman traveling up and down the California coastline following a psychiatric discharge from the Army Air Corps in 1945. Once police locate Red, he's arrested and questioned. He admits to going on several dates with Elizabeth and kissing her. He's given two polygraph examinations. The first is inconclusive. He says it's because of exhaustion from a business trip to San Francisco. He passes his second polygraph. Police also conduct a chemical analysis of his car, which resulted in no presence of bloodstains. But police do find some of Elizabeth's belongings in a trash dump. 
one black high-heeled peep-toe shoe, and a black patent leather handbag. They enlist Red to help identify the items. To do so, he smells the purse and recognizes the perfume as hers. He also IDs her shoe. He says Elizabeth asked him to put new taps on the heels for her, so he did, and the shoe had a new tap on the heel. Ultimately, police release Red from custody, and when they do, his wife, Harriet Manley, forgives him. And to that, he says, I guess I've learned my lesson. Harriet also gives her husband an alibi, telling police he was tied up at work all day Tuesday, the day before Elizabeth's body was discovered, and that that night, she and her husband played cards with friends. Upon his release, Harriet goes to the police station to retrieve her husband, and when they see each other, they embrace, and the reunited couple engages in a passionate, movie-quality kiss. His arm extends out to the wall behind her. His hand braces himself while holding a half-smoked cigarette between two fingers. After the kiss, Harriet holds her husband's pale face in her hands and looks into his blue eyes. On her left hand, cradling his freckled cheek, is her wedding band. But just below her knuckles, there appears to be a couple of small marks, perhaps abrasions on her hand. Her forearm, now slightly exposed from her coat bunching up during their hug, highlights similar marks, trailing downward and disappearing into her sleeve. With Robert Red Manley's release, a story runs, indicating there may be other suspects in the Black Dahlia case, that the quote, werewolf they're hunting may be a she. A newspaper article dated February 2nd, 1947 reads, his release turned police to the theory which had been lurking in the back of detectives' minds ever since the fiendishly cut body had been discovered. The werewolf was a wolfess. It also quotes a police psychiatrist. Only a jealous woman could have so coldly and with such fervent rage torn that body after her victim was dead. Only a woman could have driven in the dark of the early morning hours to that site off Norton Avenue and placed the body carefully on the hillock for passersby to see in the morning. A man would have aroused suspicion driving alone in that lonely spot at that hour. The reporter goes on to write, and only a woman could coldly betray by no action that her memory concealed so frenzied a slaying. Somewhere, someday, they believe she'll look up into a bar mirror and the hand that holds the cocktail glass will begin to tremble. The reflection she sees will be that of a detective. In the days, weeks, and months following the discovery of Elizabeth's body, leads eagerly rush in with information pertaining to the now infamous Black Dahlia case. A mystery envelope arrives at the news desk of a Los Angeles newspaper. Inside are some of Elizabeth's personal papers, candid photos, and a brown leather address book with more than 75 pages. Police collect two sets of fingerprints from the outside of the envelope 
and they vow to interview everyone in that address book. But all efforts lead them nowhere. Multiple confessions flood the police, including at least one scorned woman who reveals she killed Elizabeth for stealing her man. But all of the confessions seeking their own twisted fame are debunked. Fake confessions, false leads, dead ends. Nearly 80 years later, following decades of theories, whispers, and rumors, there has never been justice for the fallen would-be star, 22-year-old Elizabeth Short. Since Elizabeth loved California, her mom, Phoebe, decides to give her daughter a final resting place in the Golden State, near Berkeley, where Elizabeth's sister lives. On January 25th, 1947, Elizabeth's mom and sister Virginia, along with her husband, A.C. West, attend the intimate graveside service. The top of her casket is delicately ornate with cascading floral arrangements. And just as Elizabeth would have worn, her mom and sister are dressed in all black, from their small veiled fascinators down to their high-heeled shoes. It's time to say goodbye. Phoebe and Virginia sit huddled next to each other, arm in arm. They're holding on to each other and leaning into their faith for the grace to endure such a gut-wrenching loss. As the fog gently rolls over her hillside grave, Reverend G. Raymond White quotes scripture from the book of Deuteronomy. As thy days, so shall thy strength be. This Day in Crime is a production of Tenderfoot TV in partnership with Odyssey, produced in association with Burning Mountain Productions. Today's episode is hosted and written by me, Jessica Knoll. Executive producers are Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. Todd McComas and I are co-executive producers. Our lead producer is Dennis Cooper. The episode is edited and sound designed by Dayton Cole. John Street and Tracy Kaplan are the supervising producers, along with additional production by Sean Nurney and Jordan Foxworthy. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. The cover art is by Byron McCoy and Isabella Maxey. Special thanks to the team at UTA, Beck Media and Marketing, and The Nord Group. Sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes, and you can follow us on social media at This Day in Crime. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. See you next Saturday. Thanks for listening to this episode of This Day in Crime. The show is released every day, Monday through Saturday. For ad-free listening and exclusive bonus content, Subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus at tenderfootplus.com or on Apple Podcasts.